Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 and KSTE.com. Here is Fred Hoffman. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show today. Glad to have you along. Farmer Fred here, Fred Hoffman, UC Cooperative Extension Lifetime Master Gardener, Garden Columnist with the Lodi News Sentinel, the guy who does all the typing at FarmerFred.com, all the ranting at the Farmer Fred Ramp blog page, at Twitter.com slash Farmer Fred Daily Garden Tips, lots of snark, to get growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page, where there is always a garden dialogue going on, and all the other 21st century digital outlets. You've got your Instagram, your YouTube, your Pinterest, Did I leave anybody out? Probably. This is very unusual weather for me. There's no question about it. It's too nice. It's not usually this nice in May. It's not uncommon to have our first 90-degree reading in May by around the 13th, and yet Sacramento has yet to see a reading around 90 degrees. It just hasn't happened yet. And looking at the extended forecast, it looks like it won't happen till very late in May, till about the last weekend in May. The last time Sacramento went this long without reaching 90 degrees was back in 2010, and that reached 91 on June the 5th. So let's enjoy the cool weather and and do some outdoor gardening. Perfect time of year to be planting all sorts of warm season vegetables and flowers. Soil temperatures right now running in the upper 60s to low 70s and getting higher in a lot of spots. And don't forget, too, that the days are just so nice with highs expected this week in the 80s. Wow. And overnight lows in the 50s. This is just perfect springtime weather. Let's enjoy it. All right, what's happening in the way of gardening activities for this coming week? Let's find out. If you're looking for something to do today, well, you might want to head up to El Dorado Hills. It's the Garden of the Hills Tour and Art Event, and it's going on from 11 to 4 o'clock. You'll be able to tour beautiful gardens, sample local wines, flavorful olive oils, decadent chocolates, shop for one-of-a-kind unique artisan treasures as you commune with nature. And it's all helping the children of El Dorado County. The Garden of the Hills Tour and Art event, uh, they've been doing this for a number of years. It helps uh, out the Assistance League of the Sierra Foothills. And you can find tickets today. Probably at Green Acres and Folsom would be a good place to start. And that's where you can pick up all the information today about the Garden of the Hills Tour and Art event. Tour all those gardens that go through El Dorado Hills, Shingle Springs, Rescue. But find the tickets in Folsom at the Folsom location for Green Acres Nursery and Supply. And again, that's today, 11 to 4 o'clock. What else is going on? Well, coming up on Thursday, you can find the Calaveras County Master Gardeners at the local farmer's market. It takes place on the second Thursday of each month, 4 to 6 p.m. from May through September. The farmer's market up in Calaveras County is at 891 Mountain Ranch Road in San Andreas. So you can check out all the products there. Besides, get some good foothill gardening advice from our friends, the master gardeners up in Calaveras County. Also on Thursday, a little bit closer to home, 7 p.m., the Sacramento Perennial Plant Club is having a meeting. And they're going to be talking about irises, one of my favorite plants. Irises, the goddess of the garden. And Phyllis Wilburn, who's the regional vice president of the American Iris Society and the editor for the Sacramento Iris Society, has an iris database and also is an accomplished iris judge. And she has something like 800 varieties of irises planted at her house, including Louisiana, Japanese, arrow bread and and bearded irises and her presentation to the perennial plant club meeting thursday evening at 7 
p.m. We'll focus on cultural tips and the historical overview of the iris. And it's happening at the Shepherd Garden and Art Center, 3330 McKinley Boulevard in Sacramento. It is free. And again, Thursday evening at 7 o'clock. Coming up Friday and Saturday, this is rather unusual having a Friday plant sale, but it's Friday and Saturday, May 25th and 26th. The Sacramento Chrysanthemum Society is having their annual spring sale at the Shepherd Garden and Art Center. It's a popular event, and chrysanthemum lovers arrive early for the best selection and varieties. These aren't your typical chrysanthemums. These are very unusual, exotic spiders, the quills, and all sorts of large exhibition bloom types. It's a great selection of many varieties. Now, at this time of year, chrysanthemums are not in bloom, but they are identified by cultivar names and color with a picture of the flower in bloom. So you're buying a stick with a pretty picture. Club members will be available to assist uh, with your selections. And that again, Friday and Saturday, Friday 11 to 4, Saturday 9 to 3. It's the Sacramento Chrysanthemum Society's annual spring sale at the Shepherd Garden and Art Center, 3330 McKinley Boulevard in Sacramento. About some worm composting, that's coming up on Saturday, May 26th, 3 to 4 o'clock, and it's going to take place at the North Highlands Antelope Library at 4235 Antelope Road. Put on by the Sacramento County Master Gardeners, the Worm Wranglers will teach you the basics of worm composting. You'll learn bin setup, harvesting techniques, and what to feed your worms. It is a free worm composting workshop next Saturday, May 26th, 3 o'clock to 4 o'clock. How about a flower arranging class? That's coming up, uh, taught by the Yolo County Master Gardeners on Saturday from 10 until noon. It'll be held at the Arthur Turner Library at 1212 Merkley Avenue in West Sacramento. It's a free class where you'll learn easy techniques to make nice flower arrangements. Bring your own vase or container and small floral pruners, and then you can make an arrangement to take home. Sounds like a good deal. It's Saturday, 10 to noon, the flower arranging class put on by the Yolo County Master Gardeners at the Arthur Turner Library, 1212 Merkley Avenue in West Sacramento. Let's delve into the email you've been sending to Fred at farmerfred.com. Elizabeth wants to know who's eating her rose petals. She writes in and says, my roses have what look like stink bugs deep inside the petals. Please tell me how to get rid of them. Well, you know, Elizabeth, they may look a little like stink bugs, but this time of year in May, uh, I got to suspect it's hoplia beetles, especially if they're chewing on the petals of your white roses or your light colored roses. And the rose experts at the University of California IPM program offer all sorts of good information about hoplia beetles and their control. You can find it at their website, ipm.ucanr.edu. The hoplia beetle is a common pest of roses and other plants in many parts of California, especially the Central Valley. Because it just has one generation a year, it's probably only from late March through May when you're going to see the adult hoplia beetles feeding on the light-colored blossoms. The adult hoplia beetle, it's oval, about a quarter inch long. The head and thorax are a dark reddish-brown, and it has wing covers, and they're dark to light brown. It, it's really a beautiful body on the hoplia beetle. It's sort of an iridescent silvery green in sunlight. The larvae are small. They're crescent-shaped grubs that live in the soil. 
I mentioned that the Hoplia beetle adults are really fond of light-colored roses, and they chew round holes in the petals, especially of white, yellow, apricot, and pink roses. However, Hoplia beetles also feed on a wide variety of other plants, including calla, citrus, irises, lilies, magnolia, olive, peonies, poppies, and strawberries, and even on the young leaves and fruit of almonds, grapes, and peaches. So how do you control these hoplia beetles that go after white, yellow, apricot, and pink roses especially? Well, one way to manage hoplia beetles in your garden is to regularly hand-pick them off the flowers they're feeding on and dispose of them in a bucket of soapy water. Or you can shake them out of the blooms directly into the soapy water. And if you want, you could just clip off the infested blooms and dispose of them. Regular hand-picking can be an important way of reducing future beetle populations in the immediate area. And the folks at IPM say, really, you don't need sprays because it's very difficult to obtain effective control with insecticides against the Hoplia beetle because the blossoms protect those beetles. And since the spray has to come in direct contact with the beetles in order to kill them, it generally doesn't reach them. So handpicking is your best bet for controlling the Hoplia beetle. Don't forget, you can listen to Get Growing anytime. You can stream it at kste.com or the iHeartRadio app or download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. More of Get Growing on the way here at Talk 650 KSTE. Continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Have you tried microgreens yet? It's some of the healthiest food you can eat, and basically it's just baby vegetables that you can grow on your kitchen counter as long as there's some bright light around. We're talking with Gail Potauer, Sacramento County Master Gardener, out here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. And microgreens are exactly what that description is, isn't it? They're, these are just small germinated vegetables and herbs. Exactly. As long as the vegetable or herb or even flowers are edible to begin with, you can grow any any cool season crop, any herb that's edible. Uh, nasturtiums as an edible flower could be grown. And it takes 10 days, two weeks, depending on the variety you're growing, to go from seed to your first harvest. And you grow them in a potting soil or a seedless uh, mix. That's how they're differentiated between sprouts, because sprouts are grown in water. These are grown in some sort of a soil. So you can use that soilless seed starting mix in uh, a, maybe a pre-purchased container that has uh, several little containers that you could start the seeds in, or but you have a unique way of doing it. I save all my deli containers from the, from the deli in the grocery store, something a salad bar came in or whatever, and I just am sure that there's drainage holes in the bottom. If they're not already there, I punch them in with an ice pick, and then I can use the cover that goes on that deli container to cover the seeds initially, and then I use it as a saucer after that. But I'm sort of cheap and lazy, and I don't like to... Um, throw anything away so I reuse them. Be sure that they're scrupulously clean so I always wash them in soap and water and even a little bit of bleach if I've used them um, before with soil and they work fine. And the, the purpose of those drain holes, drainage is very important when you're starting the seeds. Absolutely and what I found with microgreens is I um, start them in a moistened soilless mix, plant the seeds, you don't have to plant them deeply, some I just sprinkle on top and kind of push them in 
And I use bottom heat just because I have it around. And I had arugula that came up in one day, and mustard came up in two days. My beets came up in two days. And then once they have grown a little bit, maybe a quarter of inch or so, then I no longer water from above because they're so fragile it tends to smash them down. So I bought uh, water from the bottom. I'll put them in a little tub of water and let it soak up through the soil. So How long will you keep them in that little pot of water? Um, just until they're saturated, maybe half an hour or so. Then take them out and let them drain. Mm-hmm. And then put them back uh, under the lights or in a window, wherever you have them. Because they grow so quickly, they don't really need a lot of light. Um, if you're growing out a tomato transplant, you need to have good light for them for um, several weeks. But microgreens grow so quickly, they don't need to be under lights a long time. Now, we should point out tomatoes are not part of the microgreen list. No, because while the tomato fruit is edible, the um, plants are toxic. And so just be sure that whatever vegetable or herb or flower you're planting is edible. And we should point out, too, that when you said you apply bottom heat, that doesn't mean you're sitting on the plants. That means that you've purchased a a propagation mat. Right. I do have a propagation mat. Or you could put them um, in a warm spot on top of your refrigerator or wherever. Cool season crops like arugula and mustard and beets that I have growing right now don't really need the bottom heat. I do it just to get them off to a quick start. And we should also point out is you don't have to cook these, you eat them raw. Right, you do eat them raw. They're so fragile if you'd sprinkle them on a dish when it's done, or I put them in salads, use them in place of lettuce on a sandwich or something like that. I don't like some of the uh, cool season crops, mustards and arugulas. I don't care for that, but I like them as microgreens because you get just a little bit of, you don't get a whole mouthful of arugula. Now, what I found amazing in your research, you found that the cotyledons serve well as microgreens. The cotyledons are the initial leaves that come out on any seedling, and then it starts forming new leaves. And you are basically advising people that when you harvest the microgreens, it could be at the cotyledon stage or at the first leaf stage. Correct. The uh, microgreens are eaten when they're very young. You don't need them to get much taller than the first um, true leaf because in some varieties, depending on the vegetable, can start to get a little woody or a little tough. So um, that's why they're great to grow. In 10 days or two weeks, they're ready. And you just snip them off just above the soil line. Yeah, you don't uh, want to pull them out, do you? No, no, with the scissors, just cut them off. You don't want to get um, soil on the part you're going to eat, so that you just cut them off, give them a haircut, and then you can kind of rinse them off and s- store them in the refrigerator maybe just for a few days. Best use them right after you cut them. But however, I did just find out I had grown some arugula for a class I taught in January, and I came home and I had a whole flat of arugula left. I stuck it in my refrigerator and they lasted a month in there. I don't know if all microgreen varieties will do that, but the arugula happened to hold up really well. And this is an ongoing process, so you would be replanting in various containers, what, every few days? Right, you could do that. Um, I, I use small containers, like a small deli container, and so I doesn't, that will last me maybe a week. And so I don't wanna have a whole glut of the same thing all at one time, so I'll stagger my plantings so that um, I can just continue my harvest over a long period of time. The convenience of of going to a a nursery or a big box store and getting one of their seed starting kits, those trays are usually maybe 12 by eight or maybe a little bit longer and a little bit narrower, but they have maybe 32 to 64 cells per tray, which means you can start a wide variety of microgreens in that. 
Correct. I've found with using those sorts of cell containers, it's a little tougher to harvest them because you sort of have the side of each of the cell kind of in the way. So I like to use a flat, something, an open, okay. like a, a flat that's six by ten or something. So you have a... You don't have any um, obstruction when you go to harvest them. Like a tray that uh, you might find at a nursery that's holding uh, several four-inch pots. Right, yeah, something like that. You want to just have at least a couple of inches of depth for the soil. Mm -hmm. don't want it too shallow, but it doesn't need to be really deep either. The right. roots aren't going to be in there that long. All right, now let's get to the meat of the matter. What microgreens are best in, in your estimation? You've grown a lot of different uh, vegetables and herbs for microgreens. Which ones do you like the best? They're basically all cool season crops, so beets, mustard, arugula, lettuce. You could do chives. I, um, you can do some herbs. Basil is good. Uh, parsley, if you like the taste of parsley. Um, those are the ones I basically use, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, and I tend to use up my old seeds. If I have a package of broccoli or cabbage that I'm not going to grow anymore, I'll use those for microgreens. Even Brussels sprouts that don't do that well in our climate, you can use those for microgreens. Now, you say cool season crops, but in reality, you could grow those year-round on your kitchen counter because you're harvesting them at the cotyledon or the first leaf stage. Correct. Um, I said that to differentiate between warm season crops, which would be corn and beans and tomatoes and peppers. Um, I've also heard, I haven't tried them, that peas, if you did peas, they're good. These pea shoots are edible. And um, so it's, it's what would be classified as a cool season crop, basically. You had something very unique in your deli containers because you tend to overplant on the edges, don't you? Right, and um, I didn't mention, you don't follow the seed package spacing recommendations. You sow them very thickly. So in a, a container that's six by six, I'll use up a half a half a package of seeds. So you want to have them really thick, no thinning required, and they're in the ground so in the soil so so short period of time. You want them thick. You want to be able to cut off a handful. I guess the easy way to plant it would be you have your tray or deli containers or whatever, and you, maybe you fill those containers maybe three-quarters of the way with that soilless mix. Mm -hmm. You sprinkle the seeds on top and then maybe cover them with a thin layer of more of that soilless mix. Exactly. That's what I do is I fill it maybe a quarter of an inch or so from the top, put in my seeds. I sow them very thickly thicker than you'd think you'd want to and then I just sprinkle in really lightly a little more of the potting soil or if the seeds are really tiny you maybe don't have to do that at all and give them a little watering and cover them and let them go. Well let's talk a little bit more about that watering now after you've planted the seeds and you want to keep that seed bed moist are you misting it? I actually have a little apparatus that screws on an old water bottle. It has a lot of little holes, like a shower head. So it gives it a fine, not a mist, but it's a not a hard stream of water. And I use that initially, but then when I cover it, I really don't need to water it again until they've sprouted. And say in my case, I had things come up in a day or two. And then once they sprouted, take the lid off, or you could use plastic wrap or whatever, and um, then put them under lights. Mm -hmm. and they'll be ready to harvest in another week. And then you water it from the bottom? From the bottom, yeah. Once they, um, I still water from the top maybe uh, the first few days after they come up, but when they start getting tall, 
Watering from the top is going to knock the plants over, so then I do bottom watering. I've saved the best for last. The nutritional value of microgreens is amazing. In your research, you found that it is multiple times nutritionally better than a full-grown plant. Right. Some sources in their research have said that they can be from 4 to 40 times more nutrients in the microgreens than in the mature crop, depending on what you're growing. And I grow them just because I think they're kind of fun and they taste good. But it's good to know that I'm also getting some added nutrients there. Could you make a whole salad out of it or just use it as a garnish? I use it as a garnish. Say if you liked an arugula salad, you could make a whole salad of the arugula sprouts. That's not my thing. I like a little bit of it on there. So I always add them to salads. But you could put them on omelets or in crepes or say in sandwiches or on sprinkle them on soup. I mean, kind of unlimited. Gail Podhour knows her vegetables, even the teeny tiny ones. Microgreens, give them a try. Gail Podhour, Sacramento County Master Gardener out here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. Thanks for talking to us about microgreens. Thanks, Fred. Get Growing continues after this on Talk 650 KSTE. listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. There is an exciting new website out there that was a joint product of the California Native Plant Society and the Jepson Herbarium at UC Berkeley. The website is calscape.org, C-A-L-S-C-A-P-E.org. Makes it easy for Californians to do this in a way that saves water, helps bring back native plants to the developed part of the state, along with the birds, butterflies, bees, and other pollinators that depend on them. And we're talking to the developer of that website, Dennis Mudd. He's a California Native Plant Society volunteer and the creator of CalScape. Uh, His previous career was in music. He was the founder of the very successful Slacker and Music Match online music service. And Dennis, I I guess that aggregating native plants wouldn't be that far removed from aggregating music uh, based on listeners' tastes. Uh, Yeah, that's true. I I must admit, I'm I'm looking at my site now, and it's... uh... It looks a lot like the uh, way we organize albums and songs back in uh, my my music days. (laughs) So I think it works very well for plants as well. I was addressing a group of uh, Northern California landscapers yesterday, telling them about this site. And it's so easy to use because you can enter in an address. You can enter in a zip code. You can enter in the city or town where you live. And up will pop a list of California native plants that will work well in your area. And it's subdivided into trees, shrubs, perennials, annuals, grasses, succulents, vines, plants for sun, native plants for shade, for part shade, ground covers, drought tolerant plants, riparian plants, and my favorite category, very easy plants. Very important category there. And it is so easy to use and people can really get a good idea of what the mature plants look like as opposed to going into a nursery and seeing a lot of baby California natives, they can actually take a look at a series of pictures of each of these plants, as well as great descriptions and how to care for them, which is very important. How the heck did you do this? Well, a lot of this was uh, was trial and error, and then working with great partners at, at uh, CNPS, California Native Plant Society, and also at UC Berkeley, the Jeff Center area. But it really started, um, you know, especially down here in San Diego, uh, it's a tough environment for a lot of plants. And I found that a lot of the plants that were available from nurseries were really either, you know, they evolved to grow near the coast and a lot of cases in central California as well. So I did a lot of research to find which plants 
actually grow in my part of San Diego County? What, what, what evolved to grow in, in San Diego County? And I found that nothing like that existed. So I worked uh, anyway. I ended up working with, with Berkeley and California Native Plant Society to put together the natural geographic distribution for, uh, for all native plants in California. And with that tool, it's very easy to see what plants really belong in every particular location in California. So let's clarify this. Does the site only list the plants that are native to that particular locale, or is it native plants that will work in that locale? It really, it, uh, it recommends the ones that are native. Um, sort of as, as uh, they've gotten more and more involved in, in uh, native plants and uh, native plant landscaping, uh, the number one rule of thumb for a successful uh, native plant gardening is, is to grow the plants that naturally belong in your location. And while there might be some exceptions that a plant that didn't really belong or didn't did not um, evolve to grow in that location will still grow well, usually it's you're you're a lot safer and you're going to have a lot more successful garden if you plant actually the plants that, that evolve there. So this um this this actually recommends the plants that that uh, you know if there if it hadn't been for development or it hadn't been for uh, um, people putting in uh, concrete and grass and palm trees especially down here in San Diego, those would be the plants that would actually be on your location. So it really is a concept of, of nature, restora- nature restoration in landscaping as opposed to just trying to guess what plants you know, might, might be okay in that particular location. Now, a lot of people have the mistaken belief that uh, native plants in California to their locale may be very limited. But, for instance, I just entered the zip code for the location of where the radio station is, 95815. And mm-hmm. up popped a list of 463 plants. That's a lot to choose from. There, there is a lot to choose from. You know, and, and what we do is we also uh, we organize it by landscaping popularity or the default order. So you can see, okay, well, you know, what are the most popular um, plants that are native to my location? You know, in, in nurseries that you know are also uh, match other requirements like the most popular shade plants, the most popular trees, the most popular very easy to grow plants, for example, that are also native to my location. So hopefully we make it easy for people to, to do this sort of nature restoration landscaping. Yeah, exactly. The uh, sorting tool is very easy to use. You can sort by popularity. You can sort by common name. Or if you're a plant nerd, you can sort by botanical name. And uh, it, it really does work quite easily. And uh, I know that the landscapers I was talking to uh, recently about this site, they were most excited because you list where the plants can be purchased. Yes, yeah, exactly. It, it doesn't really help anybody in our target anyway, our target audience. So we just tell them all the plants that uh, hypothetically would, would naturally grow in their location. They need to go out and buy them from nurseries and put them in and, you know, and do the work. So we spent a lot of time and a lot of work on getting all the California native plant nurseries into our database and, uh, and then matching up on their inventories with, uh, with, uh, with, with our database as well. So if you, you, can, you can basically even go to our nursery list and uh, click on any nursery. Look at a map. It'll show you the nurseries that are most uh, that are closest to you. You can click on another link on that on that page, and it'll show you the entire plant list of that nursery that's native to you or that's nearest to you. And, of course, uh, for people who like to do their own planting, a lot of great landscaping information, including the eventual uh, spread and height of the plant, the soil pH tolerance of the plant, the drainage condition it needs, the cold tolerance, uh, the maximum summer irrigation the plant would need, uh, how to propagate it, that's really helpful, and also uh, plants that work well with it. Exactly, yeah. We, um, we, we've been really lucky that we've had a lot of, a lot of partners 
uh, particularly uh, through uh, California Native Plant Society that uh, that have helped us build out this database. You know, for example, the uh, Rancho Santa Ana, uh, Rancho Santa Barbara Botanical Garden provided us with all the uh, the propagation information that they've developed over the over the, the decades, and that's been very helpful and very useful for a lot of people that are doing their own um, growing. How the heck did you figure out the plant list by popularity? Uh, well, we, we we use some algorithms to find out, uh, uh, first of all, uh, which plants were carried by which nurseries. So popularity, um, it, it's mostly driven by the number of nurseries that are carrying a given plant. But then we also used information from uh, uh, from Berkeley. They had uh, uh, they had a, a panel of blue ribbon um, uh, horticulturalists that that uh, that, that uh, looked at a bunch of different plants and and uh, basically so basically it's a, it's a combination of of expert input and the number of nurseries that are carrying uh, they're carrying a given plant. What sort of privacy issues may be involved in, in this? I can see a lot of people having hesitancy about uh, typing in their address uh, into the search box. Well, people can also just click on a link. So they don't have to go right to their location. Um, not click on a link. Click on a map. So we have we, we've integrated this into Google Maps. So uh, in a part of our interface, there'll be a, a nice big Google Map window. You can just click the mouse cursor on anything that's close to your location, and it'll show you the plants that naturally belong there. And the maps uh, are based on over what two million GPS field observations. Yeah, it's it's amazing. That was one of the the coolest things that I found when I started working on this. Is that uh, is that UC Berkeley and the Consortium of California Herbaria have been collecting uh, um, uh, field occurrences of plants since the mid 1800s. Uh, you know, even even I think uh, the founder of California the Plants, Jepson, was uh, involved in noting the location of a number of plants. So we've got millions of observations of the plants in the wild that we're able to draw from, and we've what we've done is we've allocated every square mile in California to one of these. Biozones, which are kind of where plants grow, and then we're able to measure the uh, the min- elevation minimum and maximum of uh, of every one of the plants. So we use those the algorithms with that information to estimate the natural range of each of the plants. It's useful for any gardener if you're looking to install a low water use landscape. Why not go with California native plants? After all, uh, native plants bring in the beneficial insects, too, that are native to the area, including native bees. And this website can help you out a lot and find you the exact plants that will do well exactly where you live. Again, the website is calscape.org, C-A-L-S-C-A-P-E dot O-R-G, calscape.org, from the California Native Plant Society and the Jepson Herbarium at UC Berkeley. And its creator, Dennis Mudd of the California Native Plant Society. He's a volunteer there and the creator of Calscape. Dennis, thanks for your time today. My pleasure, Fred. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Get Growing on KSTE, KSTE KSTE.com, and the iHeartRadio app. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. A lot of you are interested in plants for dry shade. And this is a woman who's conducting trials for the University of California on low water use plants. She works for the Cooperative Extension. She is also the San Joaquin County Horticulture Advisor. And it's a pleasure to welcome back to the program, Carrie Reed. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Carrie, that's a tough question, isn't it? Plants for dry shade. It is a tough question, and it's one that we get all the time now because we tell people to plant trees for shade, and then they don't know what to plant under them that's also for water use. In your trials, what have you discovered? 
we've come up with some really great choices, things that we've really thought performed well. Some of them are just foliage plants, but some of them also have flowers. Um, if you're looking for something in that size range, we have some beautiful plants that were just foliage. They didn't necessarily bloom, but plants that we really like. And one of them that was a surprise to us is Ligustrum sinensi, the cultivar sunshine. And Sunset has actually picked that up as one of their feature plants that they're putting out there as plants that the Sunset recommends. It's just a beautiful plant. It's not your typical Ligustrum. It's a lime green and really a beautiful, a beautiful shrub. If people went you know, to the Sunset Western Garden book and looked up Ligustrum, it would say privet. And that would raise a lot of red flags in people's minds about how, how easily does that spread. But that's like Estrum japonica, and that one is the big, glossy-leaved, dark green plant that people are used to seeing that's tree-sized. This one is like Estrum sinensi. It has small, lime-green leaves. It doesn't flower, so there's no seeds, so there's no spreading. One other request that this listener had for the plant, she wanted it to be easy care. Right. Well, on this one, you wouldn't have to do anything unless it just got, you know, eventually too large for your pathway. But, you know, there's a couple of other plants that I would recommend for that as well. And um, you mentioned the currants, and I think there's some excellent choices in the Ribes family. There's um, the, the, the lower-growing plants like Ribes viburnifolium, which do really well. And the Mahonias that you mentioned, there's uh, they've switched some of those Mahonias now over to the genus Berberus. And um, the Berberus aquifolium compacta is beautiful, and that one has those lovely yellow blooms on it in the springtime, early spring, late winter. Really attractive to native birds and native insects. That's a, a lovely choice. And then one of the Australian plants we really, really liked that I took and put in my own garden. doesn't get quite four feet tall, but it will spread to four feet wide. And that is the Australian bluebell creeper, the Solia heterophylla. Tiny little blue flowers in the summertime, very low water use, really lovely plant, doesn't require any maintenance. Now, another program that you're associated with, and I, I start seeing some commonality here, is uh, the UC Arboretum All-Stars. And, for instance, that compact uh, uh, Oregon grape is on that list, and that evergreen yes, currant is. is on that list. Yes, it is. And actually, so is the Australian Blue <laughs> Those are all three choices that we put in. You know, another one that is, was surprising to us was a new introduction uh, from Ball Horticulture called uh, Bilia Sunshine Daydream. And it's one of those variegated bilias. And those actually prefer a little bit of shade. And we grew that one in the shade. It bloomed in the shade. And it uh, was really a lovely plant. And it was a smaller abelia than the ones that get, you know, really tall and have to be cut down. Now, when you're trialing, you know, when you're trialing plants in the shade, exactly how much shade are they getting? Ours are under fifty percent shade cloth, so they're getting some light in there, but it it's still pretty shady. And um, some of these plants I take home, of course, and put in my own garden where they're under the shade of, of trees where it's dappled shade. And they still perform pretty well. We had one of the um, Ceanothus, Marie Simon, another all-star that blooms pink, which is spectacular. I could get home and put it in a spot in my yard that then became shady with time. <laughs> and it still blooms and, and seems to like the shade just fine. And uh, what about, though, a plant that is on the north side of a house? That would be less than 50% light. Um, you know, it, it would be less than 50%, but I'm assuming that it gets some light. I... I 
you know, there's still indirect light that comes into a place on the north side of a house in most cases. Now, to uh, broaden out this uh, plant choice that this woman can choose from for uh, plants that get three or four feet tall by three or four feet wide, dry shade, and maybe not necessarily California native, uh, there's a lot more choices out there, aren't there? There really are. There are tons of plants that come from other areas that are just like ours, as you know, the Mediterranean type of climates, and those are really good sources of plant materials that also do well in our climate. Talk a little bit about the trials and how little water that you're trialing. The last time I talked to you, some of these plants in the summertime were getting maybe once a month irrigations or or none at all. Right. And the really dramatic part is when they're in the shade, the soil holds the moisture so much longer that even under our 50% shade cloth, last year, the plants that were on the lowest water treatment we're not watered at all after May. <laughs> Through the entire season, they received no irrigation. And I think the year before or the two years before that, the plants that went through that section of the trials maybe got one irrigation. might have been a little bit hotter summer. So under the shade, the highest water application that we put down is every three to four weeks, which is pretty remarkable. In our, we have a heavy clay soil pretty heavy clay soil, so it does hold a little bit more water. If somebody had a really fine sandy loam, they'd have to irrigate a little more frequently than that, but maybe half that much. What, any heucheras uh, in your studies? Oh, I love heucheras, yes. We've done um, the two uh, native heucheras, heuchera maxima, and then the hybrid heuchera rosata, and they both have performed beautifully. Love those plants. Again, I put those both at home in my own garden under the shade of a tree where they don't get irrigated very frequently at all in Folsom. And um, they do really, Folsom, not full sun, <laughs> in the city of Folsom. And um, those are really excellent performers. Uh, Heuchera maxima, also known as island alum root, and the rosata yeah. heuchera, the uh, rosata coral bells. Right. And, you know, those especially heucheras do well under deciduous trees because they can handle the winter sun. And you get a really nice bloom if you plant them under a deciduous tree where the leaves fall, they get the winter sun, so they have lots of energy during the winter. They push out that early spring bloom then. Really spectacular. And hellebores are the same way. I love the hellebores. They're really underutilized flowering plants, and they give us a really beautiful early, early spring, late winter bloom. Among the plants that are not California natives that don't require much water, that surprises a lot of people that put on a show for the nose, especially in the wintertime, is winter Daphne. Oh, I wouldn't be without it. it I have two <laughs> in my own garden, and we did trial that in our trials at well, and I have it in my demo garden in stock, and it's just, it's incomparable for fragrance. A lot of good advice from Carrie Reed. You can uh, read more about low water use landscaping at one of UC Davis's uh, find websites, the California Center for Urban Horticulture, ccuh.ucdavis.edu, where you can look at uh, Carrie's information on converting to a low water landscape on how to do it. Any other good websites you like? Anybody's Master Gardener website in any county that they're in is usually a great resource. And another good website is the new Water Use Classification of Landscape Species site. And what that has on it is 
virtually every plant that's growing in the state of California and how much water it uses. So it's a searchable database that you can go on, put in exactly what you want, low water use plants for the shade, and it'll pull up a list for your particular city if you live in an incorporated city. And uh, you can create a list from that. And the website for that is W-U-C-O-L-S, Roman numeral 4. So Wuppel's 4, that should pop up and take you right to that. The University of California is hosting that now. So and again, Wuppel really stands for Water Use Classification of Landscape Species. Correct. All right. Carrie Reed, Environmental Horticultural Advisor for San Joaquin County and trialist for UC Davis uh, studying low water use plants. Always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Fred. I enjoy talking to you, too. More of Get Growing on the way here at Talk 650 KSTE. Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 and KSTE.com. Here is Fred Hoffman. Hi, everybody. We're at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. It's a beautiful May Saturday. What's in bloom in the water-efficient landscape that will really look great in your own place? Let's find out. We're talking with Susan Post. Susan's the master gardener here in Sacramento County. And Susan, well, it's May, and of course, there is a lot in bloom here. What are your favorite blooming spring plants? Well, if you look over there in the garden, the white carpenteria is absolutely resplendent. It's all blooming with white anemone-shaped flowers. And below it is the heuchera rosata and the heuchera maxima, which is the coral bells, the pink coral bells and the larger white coral bells. Actually, it's an alum root, but it looks like a coral bells. Let's talk about those two. How tall is that carpenteria? How much room does it need? How much water does it need? Does it need sun or part sun? Okay, they both need part sun, part shade. The carpenteria is about, oh, four or five feet tall, and it spreads five or six feet, probably. It needs good drainage, fairly dry soil, but to keep it looking good, we water all through the summer, but not very much. You know, maybe once every week, uh, maybe twice when we have triple digits. And then um, the Heuchera maxima, which is, and, and the rosada, the coral bells, are lower growers, and if you plant them in mass, they're stunning. The flowers on the heuchera, we should point out, are on stalks, so they stand up above the green foliage, which remains green year-round. Good plant for shade, isn't it? Yes, it's a good plant for shade, and it blooms in the shade, and it stays, the blooms stay on for at least two months, if not longer. I have it in my own yard, and it stays pink uh, for a long, long time, and then when it blooms out, you just cut off the blooms and the green foliage stays green. The heuchera rosata is an excellent plant. Again, the green foliage is maybe, what, a foot to 18 inches tall, where when it gets flower spikes, it's, what, two to three feet tall? Yes. Uh, it's about two feet tall with the flower spikes, and the green foliage is usually about a foot, and exactly. And it all likes part shade, good drainage, uh, and the soil should not be fertilized. It's happier if it's not fertilized. It needs lean soil. 
So you can just put that right in your garden and not worry about a lot of care. Although the uh, Carpinteria is much happier the following year if you deadhead it. If you deadhead those blooms after they're finished blooming, then next year you'll get a lot of blooms. If you don't deadhead, you won't have as much um, and as many flowers. How long did it take for that Carpinteria to get to its current height of four or five feet? Well, that Carpinteria was put in there in 2002. So I would say that's its mature size. And it took a few years, I would imagine, to get to that size. Yes, it, it, like 15 years <laughs> <laughs> or 10, you know. But um, And then I cut, it, I cut it on the top every year so it still looks fresh the next year. What season do you cut it back? I cut it back in the summer. After after it's done flowering? After, after it's done blooming, and then I cut back the flower stems as well as some of the stalks that might get rangy. How far back do you cut it? Oh, gosh, maybe a foot. Down to a foot or just cut off a no, foot? No, I cut off about a foot. Oh, okay. All yeah, right. no, not down to a foot. <laughs> Although you probably could coppice that, which means cutting it down to the ground, and it would probably come back from a strong root structure. Well, that's a very nice combination there. The Carpinteria with that heuchera, and again, the species involved here are? Carpinteria californica, and that one is the Eve Case variety. And the heuchera is the rosada. Yes, the heuc the pink heuchera is rosada. The white, um, al it's called alum root, is the heuchera maxima, and that's actually a parent of the rosada. It's excellent combination there if you're looking for maybe something with a bit of height, the Carpinteria, and some year-round color beneath it. Well, not year-round color, but a long season of color from yes. the Heuchera. And it's green, of course, the rest of the year. Some stunning blooming plants for part sun, part shade, the Carpinteria and the Heuchera. Check them out here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. They're in the Water Efficient Landscape Garden. And the beauty of the Water Efficient Landscape Garden, you don't have to wait for an open garden or a workshop to see this. No, it's open 24-7 here in Fair Oaks. This front area, which is the water-efficient landscape, never closes. And, of course, the rest of the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center, the orchard, the composting area, the vineyard, the vegetable gardens, they're open for special occasions. Usually it's a monthly workshop. And, of course, Harvest Day, the big event here, which is the first Saturday of the month here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center in Fair Oaks Park on Fair Oaks Boulevard, just south of Madison. Come on by and check it out if you want to see some outstanding plants that will do well in your very own yard. Master Gardener Susan Post, thanks for your time. Thank you, Fred. Let's delve into the email you've been sending to fred at farmerfred.com. Jim from Citrus Heights writes in, Is it too late to plant giant pumpkins? Actually, Jim, and for anybody who wants to grow any pumpkins, mid-May and late May is a great time to start pumpkins because the soil is warm enough now. Pumpkins, in order to germinate from seed, need very warm soil temperatures above 70 degrees. Late May, mid-May, perfect time for doing that. But uh, some tips about growing giant pumpkins. First of all, your summer vacation is going to be spent babying a giant pumpkin. Choose the right seeds, first of all. Get the Atlantic Giant, the Big Macs, or the prize winner. Now, with just average care, those will get 100 to 200 pounds when mature. But if you're the type of person that wants to grow those mammoth giant pumpkins, 
Well, that's going to take a little bit of extra effort, but you can do it with those same three varieties, Atlantic Giant, Big Macs, or Prize Winner. If your local nursery rack doesn't have those in stock, you may be able to order them from a place like Stoke Seed or Harris Seed or Burpee, or you might check Lockhart Seeds down in Stockton too. They may have them in stock at this point. Now, to grow giant pumpkins, though, you want to plant them away from other pumpkin varieties. Cross-pollination could inhibit your giant pumpkin's growth potential, so isolation is necessary. And so for maximum growth, you need to plant them not only away from other pumpkin varieties, you also want to shelter them from any sort of hot, dry winds that robs the plant of moisture, and frankly, a pumpkin is mostly water. Getting the soil ready to grow giant pumpkins is very important. Use lots of aged steer manure. Work at least one shovel full into each mound. Till in at least a dozen shovels full of manure surrounding the mound because every place the vine touches as it grows, it's going to result in more roots. You want to plant on raised mounds, about three to five seeds per mound. Those raised mounds generally have a higher temperature, so those seeds will get off to a better start. So you've planted three to five seeds per mound. Trust me, you don't want five giant pumpkins growing. Thin each mound to the two most vigorous plants after they're a couple of inches tall. Now, when you are placing these mounds, try to space the mounds about 20 feet apart to allow room for the vines to grow. Giant pumpkins are hungry. Feed them with a diluted fertilizer solution like a 520-20 or a similar formula that encourages fruit formation, not leaves and vines. And like I say, they may require frequent feeding. If you see that plant wilt in hot weather, give it water, and that could be as much as every day. But don't overhead water because the wet leaves encourage disease. You're going to have to control the bugs as well, the squash bugs and beetles. Hand pick them, or if you have a little portable vacuum, get them that way early in the morning. Now here's the trick to growing a truly large pumpkin. As the plant grows, cut off most of the vines except the one with the first or the most vigorous fruit that appears, and then do that for each plant. Tie off the amputated vine ends with string to prevent insects from entering the vine. Remove all the blooms regularly to prevent further pollination so that the plant directs its energy to the one remaining pumpkin. Now you need to help that pumpkin avoid rot, so that pumpkin you've chosen, place a board under it, a big board, maybe even a pallet. And then in October, invite several strong friends over to help move your masterpiece to wherever you want to display it. And those are just a few tips for growing giant pumpkins. You're listening to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Now, Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. There's a new book out. It had me by its very first sentence. And the first sentence is this. All politics is local, as the saying goes, and so by necessity is gardening. Hmm, all gardening is local. Where have I heard that before? Well, it's in the new book, All the President's Gardens, Madison's Cabbages to Kennedy's Roses, How the White House Grounds Have Grown with America. We're talking with the author of the book, Marta McDowell. And Marta, it's a, it's a fabulous book. It's uh, well illustrated and, and plenty of human interest stories as well. And it, it since your first sentence says all gardening is local, I have to ask, why the heck did they ever choose to situate Washington, D.C. on a swamp? Oh, well, you know, I guess that was available, Fred. <laughs> it probably wasn't the best farmland. And it was 
really convenient. You know, it had good access from water with the Potomac, and it was really close to George Washington. <laughs> yeah, that that's, was the thing. It's like 15 miles from his residence, and I could see why he was for it. But what I found interesting was the story you have in the book of uh, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton basically spending a drunken night together and deciding that Washington, D.C. would be located where it is. Well, you know, Hamilton really wanted a central bank, and so they made a deal. They made a deal, and Hamilton got his bank. You know, he took on all the state's debts, and the Virginians got the Potomac location for the federal city. As the playwright, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda said in the new play, uh, Hamilton, no one was in the room when it happened. (laughs) 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 No one else was there, so we don't really know, but that's the way it turned out. Now, what is interesting about the people who have lived in the White House, they're basically renters, and yet they have free reign as far as what they can do with the property. Uh, They can add and subtract as they please. Now, Washington, uh, it was his baby. It was his design. He was a farmer. And how did he lay out the grounds? Well, he had an architect, Peter L'Enfant, but Washington decided that he wanted the house sided up on the hill where it would have a beautiful view of the river, and certainly it would be able to be seen there. Uh, it's a lot like Mount Vernon in that in that regard. And so he's the one to put it up there, and it is up a little rise, so it looks down onto these really big grounds. And, of course, at the time, it was fairly wooded, um, and then there was also pasture land there as well. Washington also had an interest in citrus trees, didn't he? Oh, yes. Washington actually had an interest in all sorts of trees, uh, and he ordered lots of them. Now, we think he was sort of trying them out for planting around the president's house and around Washington, but he planted, you know, lots of native trees, but not just from around Virginia, all the way up, up and down the eastern seaboard. And like a lot of us, uh, he was very fond of going to nurseries, wasn't he? Oh, yes, yes. You know, we think of him always, you know, out being a soldier or then being a politician, but he took time to go to nurseries, both in Philadelphia and on Long Island. He corresponded with lots of people, got seeds, plants, just loved to plant anything. He had some sense about him, though, even though he was bringing in some plants that he knew were not native to the Washington, D.C. area. He he made accommodations for them. Like, didn't he build a big glass house for the citrus trees? Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. He had, you know, the equivalent of an orangerie, you know, a, a uh, well, it was brick and glass where he could have things that were tender. So he definitely, you know, knew a lot about about growing things and you know, wasn't wasn't uh, shy about taking a chance on something he wasn't sure about. And he probably got good advice, too. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> but but when you're president of the United States, you can pretty well decide for yourself uh, what you want to go on the grounds. You have the story in there of Teddy Roosevelt and Richard Nixon both deciding to plant coast redwoods from California at the White House. And both times they yes. died. Yes, well, you can imagine, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was so involved in the national parks and in, uh, you know, the preservation of land. And 
you know, he loved the West. So he tried a giant redwood. And then, of course, Richard Nixon, being from California, he wanted one as well. But, you know, they're there are just some things that you can't legislate <laughs> or <laughs> or be the executive of, and uh, where trees want to grow is one of them. Among the presidents, who were the most active gardeners? Well, let's see. So I really expected Thomas Jefferson to be one of the ones out there, you know, really digging in the gardens at the president's house, and it turned out that that wasn't true. He was... Uh, you know, it was a little too soon. It was still really under construction. Uh, James Madison certainly planted a lot, but the one where that, that I was really surprised about is uh, John Quincy Adams, because he got out there and dug in. Uh, he kind of learned to garden while he was president. The, the head gardener at the time, John Oosley, really taught him how to garden. Uh, Quincy Adams mentions in his diaries that uh, called John Oosley his nomenclator, meaning the, the person who taught him all of the botanical names for plants. He'd pick up acorns or walnuts or hickory nuts and then uh, bring them outside to the garden at the White House and plant them. He planted apple seeds and he actually kept propagation records. So going through his diaries, I found these wonderful entries, some of which had little drawings of these seedlings and the dates when he planted them and when they came up. And it was really wonderful. Yeah, I was amazed at the notes that a lot of the presidents took that you have illustrations of, including one Thomas Jefferson had of when vegetables were in season and available at the local market. Yes, and I was astounded not just at the you know completeness and neatness of this table that he did by hand, but also the number of vegetables that were available to him in the Washington markets, you know, through the year, much more than I would have expected at the time, right? This is the first decade of the 1800s, so they really had a lot of people growing a variety of vegetables. Another president who surprised me, he gets short shrift in elementary school history classes, but uh, I think he did a lot to promote the gardens at the White House, was Rutherford B. Hayes. Ah, yes. So now I remember Rutherford B. rhymes with tree because he loved tree planting, uh, both at his home in Ohio and then when he came to Washington, he really got that process of commemorative tree planting going. the other thing about the Hayes, so Rutherford Hayes and his wife Lucy Webb Hayes were temperance supporters. And they cut out all alcohol at the White House, which, as you might imagine, wasn't entirely popular with, with the Washington crowd. There was one uh, gentleman, I think he was the Secretary of State, and he said something like, uh, you know, of one of their parties, it was a brilliant affair. The water flowed like champagne. <laughs> so instead, the Hayes would take the uh, the guests through the glass houses. There were all of these conservatories attached to the west side of the White House at the time, and they even extended them, you know, during their administration. And then Teddy Roosevelt came around and, and tore them down. Yes. Well, you know, Teddy Roosevelt had a big family, lots of children, who is, I think, the youngest president ever uh, inaugurated. He has a big family, and 
you know, the West Wing didn't exist then. So the president was expected to live and work in the accommodations of the House. And T.R. decided, no, he needed more space. So he called in an architect and, you know, they decided the conservatories have to go. And so all of the plants were moved out to other propagating greenhouses that were down near the Washington Monument. And so went the glass houses at the White House. Kind of sad. Yeah. What plants have survived all the presidents? Since every president has put their mark on the grounds as far as plantings or designs or or whatever, are there plants that have been grown over the whole time span of the White House? Not too many. So the rose has been grown the whole time. And so it's, you know, sort of positive proof that Americans love roses. Uh, Ronald Reagan made it official. that The rose is the official flower of the United States. Uh, the American holly, so Ilex opaca, uh, the horse chestnut, surprisingly, because sometimes they struggle. And then I think a half dozen different native trees, things like maples and tulip poplars, beeches, elm, big redbud. Oh, and maybe the, the American ash. And certainly no coast redwoods. No coast redwood. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was born in California, too. All right. It's a wonderful book. I recommend it highly. It's by Marta McDowell. The name of the book, All the President's Gardens, Madison's Cabbages to Kennedy's Roses, How the White House Grounds Have Grown with America. You could probably just ask for it as All the President's Gardens, and you would find that. If uh, that's a lot to remember, go to FarmerFred.com and click on the link next to Marta McDowell's name. It'll get you more information about the book. Marta McDowell, thanks for spending a few minutes with us. Thank you, Fred. It was a pleasure. Get Growing continues after this on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. On this program, you've heard us talk a lot about the UC Davis Arboretum. What a wonderful horticultural gem it is. There's 17 gardens and collections at the Arboretum representing a living museum, a person who has been there for quite a while and, and knows all the plants by name, is the Superintendent Emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum, Warren Roberts, and it's always a pleasure talking with Warren. And Warren, tell us a little bit about the history of the UC Davis Arboretum. It'll be my pleasure. I, I, one of the things I think we'll do before we get started on that history is just to define what an arboretum is. The word arboretum comes from Latin, and it means, a, <clears throat> it means a tree place, a place where trees are. And it has a specialized meaning uh, in these days. And an arboretum is, this is uh, the quiz definition, <laughs> an arboretum is a documented collection of living trees and other plants for conservation, education, research, and enjoyment. And one of the Keywords is documented. So, for example, Capitol Park is very much like an arboretum, and there is some documentation there, um, but it, it doesn't have the the kind of documentation that could be uh, uh, useful for research. But the arboretum in Davis is. It was started in 1936. The first plantings were on uh, Labor Day. Uh, sorry, um, <laughs> Leap Year Day uh, of that year the 29th of February, <clears throat> and it was done by students 
and faculty and staff, 1936. That's even before I was started. The uh, Our documentation goes back to 1935 and earlier, and we've kept that up over the years. We're pretty well documented uh, arboretum. I think quite well. Was the Arboretum started because University of California Davis was a land-grant university and it had to be an agricultural-related endeavor? Uh, That's part of it. Uh, The immediate reason is often the case (laughs) was uh, for another reason. The old channel of Pewter Creek, with with the biggest trees on the campus, was uh, beginning to be used as a dump. It was kind of at the edge of the main campus, and people said, well, no, we can't have that. So uh, they decided to make it into an arboretum. And the, in fact, the original name is University Arboretum uh, because it was the first arboretum for the University of California. And <clears throat> the first plantings, again, were done on was called Cal Aggie Labor Day. The university uh, campus used to recess classes, and everybody would get out and do campus projects like digging the swimming pool or tearing down uh, old buildings. You can imagine we don't do that sort of thing now. In fact, Calaghi Labor Day is no longer uh, celebrated, but that uh, Calaghi Labor Day uh, happened to be the planting of the arboretum, and many of the trees that were planted and shrubs that were planted that on that day are still living in the arboretum. What are some of those plants that were originally planted that are still there? Well, some of the oldest red buds were planted then, and is the California or Western red bud, and it's typical with that species, since it's a shrub, often the very large old stems will have died when new ones have come up. So they don't look terribly old, but they are. There's, a, let's see, there's an interior live oak that was planted at that time, which has become quite large. Some of the redwood trees were planted then. Uh, some of the incense cedars and bay trees, <clears throat> excuse me, mainly California native plants, were planted. And keep in mind, 19th 36, that was kind of the middle of the Depression. It wasn't a lot of money, so there wasn't a very elaborate uh, irrigation system. A one-inch line that went uh, half a mile in each direction, <laughs> mainly used just to, to get the plant started and, and get them through the worst parts of the summer. But uh, the later on, the Redwood Grove was planted. That was planted in 1941, so it's uh, the same age as me. Uh, and uh, that was kept alive over the years by, at the end of the rainy season, a uh, one-horse plow would go through and break up the soil and create what's known as a dust mulch, a kind of a, uh, a way of conserving water in the soil and also get rid of the weeds. So that was one of the <clears throat> techniques for, for maintaining the arboretum in, that, in, in those days. We have pictures to prove it, even. Uh, along the edge of the old channel of Pewter Creek. The soil is fantastic, very deep, a loamy soil, well-drained. And in fact, I'm told that bedrock is something like 17,000 feet down, <laughs> the Central Valley having been filled by the erosion of the mountain ranges on both sides. The original plantings were mainly California native plants, <clears throat> things that could survive with without much care. In fact, by default, a lot of the arboretum <clears throat> is a collection of plants that uh, provide information for our needs today with limited water for irrigation. Let's talk about some of the specific gardens that are now part of the UC Davis Arboretum. There's something called the Warren Roberts Redbud Collection. <laughs> well, yes, uh, the, the largest uh, growth of redbuds in the arboretum um, 
was uh, uh, named in, in my honor, and that is, I think it's because my, my folks gave a nice donation to the Arboretum. <laughs> but uh, I'm pleased that it, that um, that that's it's a small area, but right now it's the most spectacular area in the Arboretum, that is to say, during the springtime. What is your favorite uh, special garden in the Arboretum? Oh, that's kind of like asking, which is your favorite grandchild? Well, mm. pretend the others aren't listening. <laughs> pretend the others aren't listening. Oh, well, I think that the overall, that the California native plant uh, section, which is kind of, is the largest part of the Arboretum, it encompasses, well, it encompasses the, <clears throat> the redback grove as well. And it has uh, plants from the foot, foothills of California, the foothill section, uh, plants from the islands off the coast of California, many beautiful species from that area. The red, red, redwood grove itself is a, a native Californian um, feature. And the red the redwood grove, gosh, it's, it's planted in 1941, big mature trees. It has a special atmosphere all its own. And it's one of the favorite places in the Arboretum for, uh, uh, for people on the campus. Because even on the hottest days, it has a cool... A refreshing atmosphere. How many acres does the Arboretum comprise now? Well, the Arboretum itself has about 100 acres along about a two-mile stretch of a waterway, which is the old the old uh, channel of uh, part of the old channel of Pewter Creek. And we have, oh, I lose track, especially a lot of things have been planted. Lately. We have about 6,000 different kinds of plants in the Arboretum. Uh, a lot of it is uh, shaded by trees. The native valley oak, we have huge old examples, some uh, supposedly more than 300 years old in the Arboretum. And you know what the best part of the Arboretum is? The best part of the Arboretum is where you happen to be at the moment. <laughs> I was going to say because it's free. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's true. It's free. It's yes, We don't have any fences. It's open to the public all year. Although after uh, the, the sun goes down, it's, uh, there's not much lighting. So it's really a daylight <clears throat> arboretum, and it is free. It's a horticultural gem, the UC Davis Arboretum. If you've never been there, go there. Seven days a week, they're open. The UC Davis Arboretum, more information online at arboretum.ucdavis.edu. Superintendent Emeritus Warren Roberts, thank you so much for uh, enlightening us about the Arboretum all these years. So much, Fred, for the opportunity. I appreciate it very much. You're listening to Get Growing on KSTE, KSTE.com, and the iHeartRadio app. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. We're at the Ferro Horticulture Center. It's a May workshop day, and I am in the herb garden with Vivian Sellers, Master Gardener. And we're looking at one particular raised bed of herbs that is putting on quite a show right now. The bees are loving it, and there looks to be about, oh, I don't know, seven or eight different types of beautiful herbs in here that would look great in anybody's sunny area if you want herbs. So, Vivian, let's talk about, first of all, about one herb in here that, well, frankly, it looks dead. Maybe it's just resting, even though it's May. And that's a, a very popular herb for sweetening called stevia or stevia. 
and it's actually dead. It did come back last year. Um, it's a tender perennial, so sometimes it comes back, sometimes it doesn't. I'm thinking maybe it's even a short-lived perennial, where it's just going to last two or three years and then be replaced. And we will replace it because it's so popular. Well, do what I do and blame everything on the March freeze that we had. Yeah, that did do a lot of damage. I live in Elk Grove, and it did a lot of damage in Elk Grove. All right. Well, moving on to so, the more successful herbs okay. that we have here, we, there's a chive called cha-cha chives. Yeah, this is a new chive, um, and instead of forming the purple flowers, you can see it forms little heads of chives. Yeah. And supposedly, you can replant those. This is our second year for this. Last year, it wasn't strong enough. Supposedly, when the flower bends over and touches the ground, it will root down. When it goes form. dormant in the winter, how far back does it die back? Um, this one, this year, actually here, the winter, the, we didn't get a real lot of frost out here. We didn't see a lot of frost damage. Um, this one still stayed green. Actually, our other chive on the other side stayed green all year. At home in El Grove, mine went all the way down to the ground. For the dinner table, what parts of the cha-cha chive are edible? Um, probably, it should be all of it. Mm -hmm. And just like the other chive, you can eat the purple flowers. Um, I don't think the little heads are, are too appealing to put in my salads, but I would chop up the chives. I like to throw the purple flowers of the chives into my salads. So. All right. Now behind it is a show for the nose. It's the apple geranium. It's a pelargonium variety called Rose of a Rose of a Rose of Altar. And it's an aromatic herb, even though it's a pelargonium. Right. And we actually have two apple geraniums. They're very different. The one over there with the little white flowers, it forms a, it has a, a round, soft, velvety leaf. And this one is, this is more the one they use to, to get the oils from mm. essential oils for the Rose of Altar. The other apple geranium is mostly just grown for show and smelling, touching, feeling. Um, don't use it too much in cooking. There is another apple geranium that they use. Uh, it has a bigger pink flower, and that's what they use in, like, apple geranium jelly mm. and that type such. Yes, the apple geranium we're staring at here, the pelargonium uh, rose of altar, does look like your typical pelargonium or geranium, whereas this other apple geranium uh, is... Well, what a great name, Pelargonium odoratissium, which means it smells. That's right. Yes. <laughs> and, and if you feel the leaf, it's very velvety look feeling. And the leaves are smaller than the other apple geranium on this uh, variety. I guess it doesn't have a common name as far as... Uh, it's just apple geranium. Apple yeah. geranium. So the one with the smaller leaf, oh, my yeah. heavens, <laughs> it does smell just like apples. It does. It does. Wow. And that, again, is Pelargonium Odoratissimum, right. for those of you that like Latin. And it's a perennial, it takes full sun, and the flowers too are edible. And it's it's a trailing, so it's cute to grow it in a pot and let it trail down. Right. Now, Vivian, I see a plant here the bees are just loving, and uh, in my experience in growing it, it's a weed. It's borage. <laughs> yes, it is a weed. This is white borage. Normally, um, the it has a blue flower, and that is, um, as the seed catalogs say, readily reseeds. This one does not reseed as readily, mm. um, but we do get lots of uh, flowers. That's why we like to keep it here, just to attract the bees. Yes, the bees are loving it, and this white borage is Borago officinalis alba, which is Latin for white. And it, it's an annual, though. Yes. Um, it, you well, know, it's, it's a receding annual. It's a receding annual, yeah. so it does come back every year. 
we've but in this bed we only get one or two that come back every year so it's not like i said it doesn't readily reseed and the eventual height of this is looks to be about two feet yep okay yep. and whereas the other apple geranium unless that's a newer geranium the apple geranium that we originally talked about looks to be about a foot tall um it will actually get up a couple of feet. Oh, okay. All right. So and so both of the apple geraniums will get about to the same height. Right. Okay, about two feet tall. Yeah. Now, in the back here, you've got a, a chocolate mint, and I'm going to squeeze one of those leaves. Sure. All right. It does smell like, to me, like cho chocolate peppermint patties. You're right. It smells like chocolate peppermint patties. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And uh, we grow it in a container because, like all mints, it becomes very invasive, and so you do need to keep it. It likes lots of water. Um, but it needs to be grown in a container, and you even want to be careful of your container. If your container has a hole in the bottom, be sure and put a screen over that hole because the mint will go right down out the hole and up the side of the pot. So, in other words, <laughs> it's an aggressive grower. As anybody who's ever planted mint in the ground will attest to, it will take off and can cover an area, which uh, it sounds like a good thing. It's not because it'll, uh, especially in shadier areas, it, it, it can take over an area. Uh, but this is interesting. It's growing in full sun. Yes, yes. Um, I have mine at home where it gets um, full sun in the morning and gets some little afternoon shade, but this can take more sun than the typical mint. Um, it tends to get taller and leggier. Mm -hmm. It doesn't grow so much on the ground. How tall will it get? Only about 12 inches. Okay. All right. Oh, a sorrel, a red vein sorrel. It's a culinary herb. It can take sun or light shade. And I imagine it's uh, the leaves that are the edible part. It is. Um, they grow a lot of the red vein sorrel as an ornamental, too, because it is attractive foliage. It has a hotter, spicier taste. The French sorrel, the common sorrel, has a more uh, citrusy taste to it, uh, whereas this is quite spicy. Can I do a taste you test? You can do a taste All test. All right. So this is the uh, red-veined uh, sorrel, Rumex sanguinarius. Yeah. And I always recommend going for new leaves because that's where you get your most flavor. Um, some people would say this is bitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't like it. I like the other one. But. All right. And then the other one is the French sorrel, the Rumex um, sanguinius. So let's find some new foliage here and see what we got. Well, there's one that's broken, so I'll try that. Well, that's an interesting taste. Yeah, it's different, and it's I throw it into salads because it's just it is an interesting taste, and yeah. so you can toss the new leaves into a salad. Um, the French actually cook it down like a spinach, but it turns kind of a funny gray color when you cook it. So, could you serve it raw in a salad? Oh yeah, okay, yeah, definitely. It, it has kind of a lemony taste. Yes, yeah, it does. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So you just tear it into little pieces, so you get something new in your bed. All right, so this is a very edible herb garden that you have here. I should point out, the sorrel is growing in a, also containers. Oh, okay. Um, Why it, is that? Well, because it also can become invasive. At home, I grow the red vein just for an ornamental, and it's in the ground, and it stays fairly compact. But the French sorrel, the all green, will spread. All Not right. as bad as mint, but it does spread. And the eventual height of these sorrels? Probably about 18 inches, mm -hmm. and you always want to keep the flowers cut so it keeps producing foliage. Are the flowers edible? I haven't ever tried them. 
I want to Rose at Morningside Herb Farm says if the leaves are edible, the flowers should be edible. Well, Rose Love All Sale knows her herbs, and she, she, she would know for sure. And you have a drip system running through this. You have, what, three drip lines running the length of the bed? Right, and the spacing on the drip, they're every 18 inches. We've been having trouble with the irrigation. Um, the problem with the irrigation that we have in these beds is the water goes straight down. It does not spread out. Mm -hmm. We ran it for two hours today, and you'll notice that there are some very dry spots in a lot of the beds. So that would indicate that maybe, and the lines themselves are spaced how far apart? About, about a foot apart. foot apart. You would think that would be plenty. You would think so. Yeah. But now this bed, because it gets partial afternoon shade, especially in the in the summertime, but the beds across that get full sun, they get really dry. And fortunately, herbs don't need a lot of water, mm -hmm. um, but some of our herbs do suffer because they're not planted right next to the emitters. One thing people should note, if you're putting in a raised bed to grow anything, be it vegetables or herbs or whatever, the water is going to drain quickly out of that raised bed because it's a more loose, porous soil. So it may require more frequent watering, not necessarily more water, just more frequent water. Well, I think we've had a very successful uh, time here at the Herb Garden. As you walk into the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center's main area, the orchard is to the right, and you're going to be walking up the pathway lined with herbs on either side. On Harvest Day, the first Saturday in August, there will be people here to answer your questions about herbs as well as the orchard, the vegetables, the vineyard, the water-efficient landscape, everything here. It's the first Saturday in August. is Harvest Day here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center in Fair Oaks Park right off Fair Oaks Boulevard, just south of Madison. Come on by and say hi to Vivian Sellers. She'll be out here smelling the herbs. I will. Thank you very much, Fred. Thanks for listening to Get Growing here on Talk 650 KSTE. I appreciate your support all these years. Stay tuned for the KSTE Farm Hour. That's next.